This is One in 36, a presentation of the Anderson Center for Autism. One in 36 is a weekly show devoted to autism spectrum disorder. Good morning and welcome to One in 36. You heard it right. That's One in 36 is the new name of this podcast. It is a uh, show dedicated to um, all topics related to autism spectrum disorder. And I am your host, Eliza Bozenski, Chief Development Officer at Anderson Center for Autism. Uh, the new name of the show reflects, as it always has, the current statistics published by the CDC on the number of children in the United States currently diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Um, it was recently one in 44. When I started this podcast, it was one in 88. That was several years ago. And so as we're going to talk with our guests today, um, the numbers continue to rise in terms of that particular statistic. And we're going to talk about some implications in the field um, with our guests today. Uh, Dr. Debbie Napolitano, who is the associate professor of, in the behavioral sciences department at Damon College and has been in this field for a number of years. Uh, Debbie, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Um, so, so yes, you are our first guest under this new name, and yeah. we're going to have a conversation about not so much the study itself. I've, you know, we've talked about that in the past on this podcast, but really um, the numbers are not turning around. They're not stopping. They're not slowing down. They're continuing to increase um, in this particular study. So I know that, um, well, we're going to get into a lot of different topics, but why don't we start by, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? What, what got you to where you are at Damon College doing what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. So I am a licensed behavior analyst and I have been a behavior analyst um, since 2000, I think. Um, I was very fortunate. I went to school at the University of Kansas, got my PhD in developmental and child psychology and um then uh, eventually was recruited to New York, which is where I am now. I live outside of Rochester, New York with my family. Um, I have been um, been working particularly in the field of ad- area of advocacy in um, in behavior analysis for a very long time as a member of the uh, New York State Association for Behavior Analysis. I um, was uh, at one point the president um more recently the um, chair and now the co-chair of the public policy committee. So um, through that uh, work with NICE Saba, I have worked very hard to advocate for our field, for um, a license for our field and a variety of other issues. And because of that, I've also become more actively involved in, um, in legislation and public policy in general. And, um, and the issues that are facing many of, um, the, the individuals and families, um, who, uh, happen to be diagnosed with autism or, um, autistic disorder. And I, um, have a, a, a lot of concerns about, um, where we're heading in, in our state right now. Hmm. Uh, you are not alone, I would think, um, here and probably elsewhere, but certainly in, in this state, I think, um, advocacy is something that I, um, I see firsthand amongst the families at Anderson. We have an Anderson family partners group, um, who, 
sort of founded themselves um, several years back uh, with a small group of, of engaged families. And that group has continued to grow. And one of their three main sort of areas of focus is advocacy on behalf of their loved ones. Um, and what it often comes down to, um, even though there's many issues that you could choose from within the field, um, the one that, that pertains to them mostly that they really focus in on are the ones that have to do with with um, uh, direct support professionals, uh, specifically what direct support professionals are paid, um, the you know, which is which some many would argue is not a living wage. And you can see that firsthand when you see how many DSPs are working several jobs to make ends meet or are leaving the field um, to take something, you know, to do something that maybe they are not passionate about by any means, but they need to take because it allows them to, to live. Um, but also, I think on a bigger picture, um, not just jo- not just funding, but also a just general sense of a recognition of the work that DSPs do and the importance of it. And from a family's perspective, they're looking at whoever will listen to say these people are taking care twenty four seven of my child, whether my child is eight or my child is fifty four. Um, they are doing this, and why can we? Do we seem to struggle so much in professionalizing that role? Um, so I'll, I'll throw that at you. What's your reaction to that? I have a lot of reaction to that. Um, first, uh, is that I actually came into this field a little differently than a lot of people. I think, um, I actually started out as a, a DSP and, um, and in that role, um, I, it's where I learned to love, um, working with individuals in particular at that time, adults with disabilities and, I, um, recognize the need for, for myself for increased, um, skill set around being able to support them effectively. And that's how I became interested and started to love behavior analysis. Went back to school, um, mm-hmm. to become a behavior analyst. Um, through that process before, before that, I was, um, a director of residential programs and, um, so I've had the opportunity to really not just understand from the perspective of someone who works so closely with direct support professionals, but having been a direct support professional to understand how hard that job is and how fulfilling it can be because it, it really shaped my career, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, but unless we invest in the field and unless we invest in, um, that, that role and professionalize that role in a way that makes it a career, yes. we will continue to have such significant turnover. It's not just that, um, many DSPs have to work as much overtime as possible or get a second job. They are also accessing government assistance because they're not making enough money to support their families. And if you are in a job where you are not making enough money to support your families, that's not a job you would consider a good career move. And so we have to really be thinking about this as, um, as, as a, as a profession and how do we help ensure that that happens because that's the only way we're going to sustain the systems in our state that support 
the individuals that that their family members, the family members of these advocates that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I um, have the great fortune to be um, I'm on the board of uh, parent to parent. And um, even though I'm not a parent of a child with a disability, um, I'm on a a local similar to um, probably the parent group at the Anderson Center, um, regional parent group um, here in the Rochester area, because I have had the great opportunity to meet the most passionate, compassionate, amazing parents who have literally devoted their lives to advocating to ensure that their loved ones have what they need especially after they're gone. And it is heartbreaking to see their reaction to what happened, particularly with this most recent budget. There was was an actual belief that this was going to happen this time, that there was going to be an eight and a half percent cost of living adjustment for DSPs. And that was cut in half. And 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 people are expected to think, okay, well, four percent—that's still four percent, but that doesn't even begin to address the problem. <laughs> no, and and you know, eight and a half would have been okay, but it, it's the history of the the funding disparity goes so far back. Yes, you starting with eight and a half percent is you. Some could say it's just sort of arbitrary because it's you know it sounded good, but then four sounds. I guess, like you said, you know, you can make the argument, at least it's something, but, but the problem is it's not enough. And I think you nailed it when you said that um, there's no real way for most people, most anyone to, to look at a DSP job as a career path. Now at Anderson, we do, I think some creative things. I'm sure there are lots of organizations that are thinking far more creatively than we ever have had to in terms of both retention and recruitment of our staff. We have career tracks. We have opportunities to grow. Um, you know, we have this new role, newish role called uh, registered behavior technician, which I'm sure you're familiar with, yes. which is, you know, a lot of our staff have taken advantage of that training and have become RBTs um, from a role as a DSP. But um, but I, I just would suggest, and I, again, uh, we're almost at our break, but curious your thoughts on, are we really talking about a bigger, a much bigger societal sort of cultural, if you will, change in the way um, we just, whether you're a, a board certified behavior analyst, you know, have your doctorate, don't have your, whatever path you're on, when we're in human service, should we be looking at just the recognition that taking care of each other and human to human contact and care should be far more valued overall than it is? I don't know when that change happened, but it, it seems to me that we need to make a change there. I, I agree 100 percent. And I would have thought that um, COVID taught us that. And, <laughs> you know, of all uh, to see that the the real heroes throughout COVID in so many sectors, in, but including direct support professionals who went to work day after day, when so many of us had the luxury of working from home, you know, they're, 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 you, we would have thought that that I would have hoped would have taught us that compassion and that understanding the need to be able to take care of each other and to look out for each other. And I don't, I don't see that being a priority, unfortunately. And I think that it, it's actually reflected, um, even more so. And something that, that concerns me a lot is the, um, is the entire service system, particularly in how persons with disabilities are, um, are, are, um, are treated in terms of, um, of the supports that are available and so many of the issues that, that 
you know, that we see um, where they end up in places they shouldn't be um, because the service system itself is broken. So it's beyond it's beyond the, the DSP problem, which is a huge problem in and of itself. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I think we just Anderson just uh, stepped into the world of preschool. And so my understanding now is that the preschool waiting list, which means that there are children who are very young, who some argue benefit greatly sometimes far more significantly and and faster to intervention at a much younger age are sitting on waiting lists instead of being in classrooms um, with experts. And on the, and on the other side of things, as people age, the idea of aging with dignity, aging in place, um, Mm -hmm. having a place to live after you graduate from school and in at age 21, um, there's a, there's a significant gap, AKA failure on that end too. So, um, so it's, uh, I don't know, I'm getting worked up now. I'm a little stressed out. I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and then, uh, then we'll go into a couple other areas with, um, with Dr. Debbie Napolitano from Damon College. This is one in 36, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and we'll be right back. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. And now, 1 in 36 continues on 100.7 WHUD. This is a weekly community affairs program presented by the Anderson Center for Autism. Welcome back to 1 in 36, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and I'm talking today with Dr. Debbie Napolitano, who is an associate professor in the Behavior Science, Behavioral Sciences Department at Damon College. Um, we've been getting ourselves, I think, each other just <laughs> back and forth, you know, discussing uh, the, I guess, under the framework of the change in statistics of children being diagnosed on the spectrum in this country from one in 44 to one in 36 recently, but a lot about DSPs, our society, how we view sort of the caretaking, the human services field as a whole funding, the recent budget in New York state, uh, lots of topics. I want to pivot a little bit because I know that you, um, you uh, have a degree in applied behavior analysis. You sit on the public policy board uh, for NYSABA. Um, way back many years ago, I actually, um, for a few years, ran Anderson's clinical department, It's which is now called our behavioral services department. Um, I do not have a, my BCBA. I'm a social worker, actually. Um, that's my educational background. But I was managing that department more from a standpoint of the department at the time really needed uh, kind of an identity to come together, to learn to be collaborative and and to yes. work well within the framework of a larger organization. Because we, we're, not a, we're not a storefront sort of offering ABA services. We're a mm-hmm. residential, large program serving children and adults. So it was a huge learning experience for me. And, um, and one of the things that I remember doing a lot was trying to help this group of mostly young professionals who were very eager to make an impact and to help the people we're serving to, um, to, uh, 
at the time, I guess the language was, you know, learning replacement behaviors and just sort of, you know, be able to be more successful and independent in situations where they weren't, you know, necessarily always going to have somebody right next to them mm-hmm. helping them. So it was a, it was a noble effort, but they struggled a lot with collaboration and uh, working with other departments who had, who were working with the same people, but had a slightly different purpose in terms of their role. So I'm curious if you have any commentary on, um, or, or when you're working with your students, do you ever talk about best practices in in um, in professionals in the world of ABA um, working successfully in a collaborative model? Because you're working with DSPs, residence managers, nutritionists, dietitians, speech pathologists, OTs, PTs, administrators. How does the and families? Um, what do you, do you get into that? Yes. Your work? <laughs> yes, that is actually um, something that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, interprofessional collaboration is something that um, that I have learned a lot about in my uh, practice, but I don't think um, in our field that we focused a lot on that in our training. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but I think that we're, that we're taking a, a, we're making a shift in that because it's so important. I have been really fortunate to have learned from particularly one of the roles that I didn't mention is that I am also a consultant with the Golisano Institute for Developmental Disability Nursing. And mm. in, in my role as the consultant, I bring an interprofessional lens. So I get to work with the most amazing nurses that I could ever, t- I could ever, 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 uh, ever, uh, uh, get to work with. And, um, but in that role, um, I, I, I have a value to them and vice versa because there's so much importance in this collaborative role in understanding things from multiple perspectives to make sure that we are really understanding the best ways to treat complex issues. All of the issues that that we talk about or most of the issues that we talk about when we're looking to solve problems are complex. And to think that we can solve them with one person or one profession just isn't, um, isn't realistic. And mm-hmm. so, um, so, so one of the things that, that we focus on at, at Damon in particular, um, and that is, uh, important for me is that collaboration and that collaborative approach. Um, I also do most of my work, my clinical work now, where, um, I've done a lot of work in the OPWD system, but most of my clinical work is actually in the OCFS and mm-hmm. juvenile justice system. And um, as you can imagine, that necessitates working with um, professionals from many different um, professional backgrounds, but not just professionals. One of the things that's inherent in interprofessionalism is working with the families, with the individuals and direct support professionals where everybody has a voice at the table. And if you do not have all the voices at the table, you're going to miss something important. And mm-hmm. so that that is really a big focus of um, of how we train our behavior analysts now. I hope that that's where most programs are moving and um i think that you know that comes from being a a, a newer a professional field um as we're be, you know getting our professional legs under us yeah. um, we've been around for a long time but in terms of the field itself um being um having uh licenses and certifications those those things come with time and i think that we're moving in that direction that's great to hear and it's cool that um that you see a shift because that's a nice recognition that you know 
that it, that something needed to change for the better of the individual. And I agree with you, you know, problem solving um, is, is always complex. Um, doesn't mean it's not, it's not addressable or that there is an opportunity for success. Um, it just, it often means that you need all the voices in the room. I agree with you hundred percent on that. Um, the other thing that is, is, is definitely out there in a big way right now um, with a lot of media coverage and a lot of uh, new voices or, or voices that maybe had been quieter um, in the past uh, is, which I, I'm watching, you know, and reading about, I'm fascinated by it just because at Anderson, we we are in a niche, right? Anderson Center for Autism serves, generally speaking, people who are profoundly affected by autism. Um, this is a, you know, autistic slash IDD population. Most of the, I mean, we have a long history. We're turning 100 next year. We're having oh, our wow, centennial. congratulations. Thank you. Um, but I mean, we started out serving over the decades. I mean, many different populations, but um, since the late 90s, early 2000s, we've really been focusing on serving um, autistic children and adults who are typically have very complex behavioral challenges, many of whom are non-vocal, um, communicate in different ways. Um, uh, and, and we are considered, at least the term used to be, a restrictive environment. We're a residential program. Um, we enjoy, thankfully, a lot of family engagement. Families are here on our campus. Fam- you know, students and adults go home uh, frequently. But, um, but that is a very niche population. Um, and, and so I've seen that ABA has made the news a lot because um, there's also, uh, I think, more and more self-advocates who are speaking up about experiences either they had or opinions that they have about ABA and opinions just about all sorts of things from terminology, language, um, diagnostics, um, or a sense of just, uh, you know, th- this is just me. And, and nobody should be intervening with nobody should should receive something different. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's a hot topic. It's it's up to you if you want to comment. But I'd be curious. Um, I, I guess I'm curious if you get different questions now in the classroom or when you're when you're on your board meetings or in, in your family groups. Is the discussion around that stuff changing, too? It is. And I think it's an important discussion. Um, I um, <clears throat> excuse me. One of the things. <clears throat> sorry. Um, one of the things that. Um, that I think is extremely important is that we're listening to all the voices and all of the people with um, experiences and all of the persons who have um, thoughts about services that they've received just because um, somebody, you know, so just because I, I think that the work that I may do is, um, is, is not, is not, would not be considered abusive in any way, um, doesn't mean that somebody hasn't engaged in a, in, in a bad practice and called mm-hmm. it an ABA. Um, it, it, the thing about behavior analysis that is sometimes hard, I think, is, um, is that, is that people confuse behavior analysis with a therapy and it's really a science. And the science kind of just is, it is, it's a science of how people behave. How people apply the science is a whole different ballgame. And that's the, that's the way that, um, I think it, I certainly think that there, that, that, that there's some, um, some, 
some uh, authenticity with the way people have been um, treated. And, you know, humans are humans and humans do good things and humans do bad things. And sometimes they do them because they don't know better. And sometimes they do them because they do know better. And unfortunately, um, it's, um, it's, it's, you know, sometimes weeding through all of those voices to make sure that we're keeping the good and not getting rid of the good, but getting rid of the bad. And, um, and I think that, that being person first and really taking into account what the individual wants and what the individual needs. And as our first line, the way that we start anything, any conversation is, um, is an important way to approach things. And I do think that in our field, we're, we're coming around to that, um, probably more quickly than I even thought. And I, and I think it's a very good thing. That's great. That's good to hear. Um, I, what you said before about, um, you know, it's a science and then there's the application um, and the practical application of that science. I, that going back to my uh, historical experience here at Anderson, that was a big thing that we needed to, to be focusing on was just because you have the information and you've studied it and you have your certification, it's a, it's, it's a different skill to be able to apply that knowledge in a practical yes. setting with real human people who have families and who have, who have a whole team of other people around them um, and, and who are individuals and, and have different hopes and dreams and, and a different sense of what their quality of life means to them. So um, I think that that's really important. You are you are lifting my spirits. The first half of the show, I think we got really worked up about some of the things that are really hard right now. But yes. I think just hearing you talk about um, this uh, huge part of the field and this science and, and, and just where you are in your thinking and where your students are and where the people you're working with are um, seeing things change. I'm feeling much more optimistic. So thank you oh, for doing that. Great. Um, thank you for being on the show. Again, you are our debut guest for one in 36 and I really appreciate all your time and expertise. Thank you for having Dr. Me. Debbie Napolitano. And thank you for all of the work that you do at the Anderson center. Well, you're very welcome. We love what we do. So we're going to keep yeah. on doing it for another hundred years, hopefully. Yay. That's wonderful. It's, <laughs> So needed. <laughs> this is one in 36, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and remember, Anderson cares. You've been listening to One in 36, a weekly presentation of the Anderson Center for Autism. Join them for another edition of the show at this time next weekend.